And I'd like to invite the rest of you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. We'll be starting in verse 15 this morning. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provided for you there, those black Bibles, will be, that'll be page 973 of those Bibles that we provided for you. And uh, let me just say, it's such a blessing to come together and worship God, to sing praises to His name. It's just sense a, a real sense, a real atmosphere of, of sincerity and, and just kind of giving everything to God. And that's what we want to do when we come together to praise His name is just to give our whole selves to Him and, and praise with our voices and with our lives. Uh, so God, I praise God for that. And I praise God for Micah and Seth and, and the team. It's awesome to have Mel up here now. She's going to sing from time to time. And uh, quick, quick story on Mel. She, she used to, we used to kind of sit in the same section at church. I was like, man, this girl can kind of sing, you know. And then uh, a week or two later, just kind of wanted to make sure my ears weren't playing tricks on me. And I was like, man, no, she can sing. And so it's really cool to have uh, Mel a part of... Uh, of uh, our praise team. So if you're sitting near me and you think you can sing, you know, it's like, or, you know, maybe I'll drop a word to Micah. If you, if you can't sing, don't try that, okay, because <laughs> probably won't go over so well. Um, but, uh, but anyway, that's Micah's deal. I don't, I don't do all that. Uh, but today we're going to be in Gal- Galatians 3, and I uh, want us to think on who God is as the God of promise. Now, uh, this week I was uh, doing a little reading and I saw on the Huffington Post where there was a headline, Google pr- breaks its promise to no, uh, not show uh, uh, banner ads, okay, at the top of their, their search engine. So uh, if any of you use Google, can I get a show of hands? Anyone use Google here today? Okay, that's like uh, 98% of us. Okay, even my dad who is technologically challenged. He knows what's up with Google, you know what I'm saying? And so, so most everyone, most Americans know how to use Google to search what they're looking for uh, on the internet. Perhaps you even search for yourself. You know, 56% of uh, Americans even do a search for themselves. Uh, so if you're smirking, I'm probably like, mm, got you right there, right? That's, that's you, uh, just to see what pops up, you know? Uh, but, but regardless, one of the beautiful things about Google is not only just the, the wealth of information and the efficiency that, you know, it just pulls up, you know, and like point something seconds, you know, you have all these millions of options to, to look for, for what you need. Uh, but also it's just the simplicity of design. And so um, it's one thing if there are kind of a couple of ads, you know, at the top or on the sidebar there. But, uh, but back in, I think, 05, okay, Google's about uh, 15 years old. And back in 04, 05, they made this public declaration that they would never show banner ads across the top of their search engine to minimize on distraction and keep the main thing the main thing. Well, if you go and search, okay, don't get your iPhones and iPads out right now, but if you go search for Southwest Airlines or U.S. Virgin Airlines, then what you're going to find is a beautiful uh, and potentially distracting and intrusive banner ad uh, that they are now reeling out for everyone potentially to make use of. Now, What's, what's the point here? Okay, the point is that there is now this contention that Google has gone back on their promise to keep everything clean and nice for their consumers at the hands of making more money in their marketing schemes, all right? So it's one thing if we're talking about a promise being broken as it relates to internet advertising. 
It's a whole other ball game for talking about a promise being broken that has the potential to alter your week, your month, your year, or possibly even your life. So let me ask you, have you ever been given a promise that you never received? Have you ever made a promise that you failed to keep? My assumption would be that most all of us fall into both of those camps this morning. And so the beautiful part of our passage in Galatians 3 is we're going to be exposed to the God of promise and this God who always keeps his promise. Galatians 3, starting in verse 15, I want us to see this morning that all the promises of God belong to us through Christ, all right? All of the promises of God belong to us through Christ. Let me read verses 15 down through 22 uh, as we get started in the text. Paul writes, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Let's pray one more time. Father, we are weak, but you are strong. Father, our flesh so often fails. But Lord, we know that you never fail us. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so Lord, just as you've promised to speak to us through your word, as you've promised your spirit to open our eyes and open our hearts to see you and to see ourselves and to see how we can better relate to you, Father, we pray that that's exactly what would happen here this morning. Father, your word, your heart is full of promises for us to know, understand, and obtain. And so, God, I don't know where each person here is this morning. I know one thing that you've brought them here, and you brought them here for a reason. It's by no mistake. And so, Father, it's my simple prayer that you would speak to all of us. Meet us at our point of need. Help us to understand the beauty of Christ, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of your promises, and that you would help us to walk 
in them today, we pray through Christ. Amen. Amen. Number one, I want you to understand God wants you to experience him as the God of promise. Okay, so do you know God as the God of promise? What we just received here in these several verses of Galatians 3 is really a crash course on redemptive history. You have about 2,000 years being unpacked in a few short verses. And the basic argument that Paul is making to those who are trumpeting the superiority of the Mosaic law is to say that the Abrahamic covenant takes priority over the Mosaic covenant. Now, let me explain why that is. We could trace the overarching storyline of the Bible, and we would see that God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. In the very beginning, he made a covenant with Adam. Adam didn't keep his end of the covenant, and so God makes another covenant with Noah, Then he makes a covenant with Abraham, which we're going to look at today. And then another one with Moses through Moses, the Mosaic covenant. And then as we trek on through the Old Testament, we see that there is a Davidic covenant. There's going to be this one, one of David's offspring who would be king, who would fulfill the the promise to Abraham and usher in finally this new covenant that is established and inaugurated with the coming of Christ. So in Scripture, you have this storyline of covenant that is at work. And in these covenants, God promises blessing on his people. So he says, I will make you fruitful. I will bless you and cause you to inherit the land. I will be your God. So what is the the difference between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. Why does the Abrahamic covenant take priority over the Mosaic covenant? Well, here we go. Number one, the the Abrahamic covenant is fundamental because it precedes the Mosaic covenant. All right, this is what we see in verse 15. Paul begins to argue and he says, let me just unpack this. Why it's through Abraham that the promise comes to all those who receive this blessing through faith in Christ and not through the keeping of the law, which is what the Judaizers, these false teachers, these agitators were trying to say to the Galatians. And so Paul says, look, the Abrahamic covenant came first. And in verse 15, it says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So this is similar to our understanding of a will and testament, okay? Hopefully, if you are, are a father or mother or uh, you, you have some kind of property or estate, then you have already lined up a will by which you will then designate who you want to be the heirs of all of your possessions, So that one day when it comes for you to die and you pass on from this life to the next one, your assets and and estate will be able to go to exactly who you want to receive it. That way your, your neighbor who you maybe didn't get along with comes by and he says, oh no, but you know, you know they promised me that, that, that you know, I could extend the lines in my backyard over here and you know, that nice car, yeah, he said I could like it because that's my favorite model. And, you know, it's just, so it doesn't work that way. What is in a will 
is designated. It goes to the recipients, the heirs of the inheritance. And so Paul is arguing here from the lesser to the greater to say, if this is how it works with a man-made covenant, how much more does God's covenant operate in a similar fashion? No one can annul, no one can add to, amend the covenant of God. And so the Abrahamic covenant is fundamental because it comes first. It precedes the Mosaic covenant. Paul also says that it's the way that it came, that that God gave his covenant to Abraham directly, not through an intermediary or or a mediator, okay? So God speaking his, his law, probably through angels also kind of at work there to Moses and then Moses to the people. So you have multiple kind of mediation that highlights the distance between God and man. The Abrahamic covenant didn't work like that. It was given from God directly to Abraham. But then most importantly, the Abrahamic covenant is a covenant of promise, whereas the Mosaic covenant is one that is marked by the law. So what we have then is is this distinction, we have to understand the distinction between the promises of God and the law of God. You see, promises highlight the work of God. I mean, just as you read through the Bible, through the course of the year, you should underline every time you see the words, I will. I will do this. I will do that. I will uphold my word. I will care for you. I will uh, lead you. So all of these, all of these commitments from God are, are him upholding his promises. Promises depend on him and his work. And even as we know in our own experience... A promise is only as good as the one who is making the promise. So, do you have confidence in the one who is making the promise? Are you sure that the one who has made the promise has the ability to come through on that promise? These are the questions that swirl when we receive a promise. And every time in scripture, we see that when it comes to God, the answer is always a resounding yes. Not one word of God has ever failed. God is faithful as surely. Listen to this. Did you wake up this morning? Did you see the sun rise, pop up over the eastern sky once again? As surely as the rising of the sun. This is how faithful God is. These are the metaphors that we see in Scripture. This is how consistent and faithful our great God is. So promises highlight the work of God. I will, I will, I will. Laws highlight the work of man. Do this. Don't do that. Don't cross this line. Don't go too far over here to the right or to the left. And so Paul is saying it is either blessing through the promise or blessing through the law. You can't have it both ways. So this promise is given then to Abraham's offspring, who he says is the Christ. There was an original promise of land to the people of of Abraham who became the people of Israel. And they received this land. 
But that wasn't the end of the covenant. That wasn't the end of the fulfillment of the promises because he says that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And this offspring is going to come who will both receive the promise and fulfill the promise. So in Christ, as we will see, this is good. In Christ, it's not only that we receive land, but we actually receive the world through Christ. So Paul is arguing that this covenant with Abraham has to take priority in our understanding of how God is at work in bringing his great salvation and blessing to his people. But then the question becomes, well, then what becomes of the law? What's the purpose of the law? He even asked this in verse 19, why then the law? And he answers, it was added because of transgressions. Now, what does Paul mean? We understand that the law was given in part to restrain sin, okay? So, so the law is a, a reflection of the character of God. We understand the heart of God when we see his laws, and every one of the laws tells us something that is true about the heart and the character of God. All right, so, so when, when the law is given, it reveals his will to us, and we know that whenever we violate, when we step over the bounds of the law, we have gone against the will of God. We have rebelled against his rightful authority in our life. But at the same time, and we see this in our own everyday experience, laws given don't ultimately deal with sin. They can only restrain sin so far because sin is not simply a matter of our behavior, but it is a matter of our heart. What we need is not behavior modification. What we need is a heart transformation from God. So the law was not simply given to restrain sin. The law was given also to define sin. Now we know what sin is because God has spoken it to us in his word. Romans 3, 19 and 20 help us here so much. And I hope that you will receive it with humility this morning. He says this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So here's how it works. You stand next to the law. Perhaps you look into the mirror of the law, and the law starts showing you, hey, I said, don't do this, but you did it. And I said, don't cross this line, but you crossed it again. And, and just time after time, we see where we haven't measured up to God's standard. We haven't lived out God's will. And we are effectively shut up by the law, all right? So you want to say, well, wait, 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 I'm not that bad of a person, okay, I, 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 I do a lot of good things too, and the law says, look, be quiet, you're, you're a transgressor. You see that? So the law shuts our mouth, it holds us accountable to God, which gets at really what Paul is emphasizing here when he says, I believe, 
It was added because of transgressions. The law was given to show us how sinful we really are at our core. So when God adds laws, it only multiplies our transgressions. If there was another piece of, of, of morality that would help me to honor God, and God said, Tanner, do this. Because of my, my sin and being, being under that power of sin before I met Christ, I would most definitely break that law. It's just how it works. It's what Paul is saying, I believe, when he says that everything Scripture imprisoned it under sin. And so if we don't have a confrontation with the law, we will never understand what the gospel is all about. Every time we break God's commands and we sin, it's as if this mountain heap of, of transgressions and the associated guilt that comes along with it is piled up like a mountain to show us how bad we are in need of grace. So this is what John Stott says about Galatians 3. And don't miss this. He says, the purpose of the law was to lift the lid off of man's respectability and disclose what he is really like underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God and helpless to save himself. And the law must still be allowed to do its God-given duty today. We must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear. And it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. So I, I pray and just like forget, you know, little sermon here. I mean, I'm just like, let me talk to you as a friend, okay? Like as a friend who cares about you, not simply a pastor. I pray that you have had a confrontation with the law. The law is showing you, uh, you haven't measured up. You haven't honored God. God is holy. You haven't reflected his character. God is glorious. You have, you have tainted his glory by the way that you've lived your life. And the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is condemnation and judgment. But thanks be to God. Because he brings Christ in to abolish the wages of our sin. To do away with the guilt and the condemnation and the bondage that results from our sin. So what is the relationship then, okay? We're about to cruise out of deep theological session here, okay? But let me just finish this, all right? What is the, the, the difference, the, the relationship between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant? So, so the purpose of the Mosaic covenant, as it shows us our sin, was to be a signpost to continue to point to the promise. You see that? So, so the job of the law is to point to our need for grace and the promise that is going to be fulfilled in Christ. So I don't know if you've ever been on a road trip. We used to take a lot of road trips when I was a kid. 
And we would maybe, you know, be driving from Kentucky, where I grew up, down to Florida to go to the beach, right? That was a highlight of, of the summer when we could do that. And, you know, inevitably, we would be cruising down the road. We would start to get hungry, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you ever had this experience? And so you start looking at the billboards, you know, when is the next exit? Man, I hope my favorite restaurant or fast food joint is, you know, coming soon, all right? This was before the days, you know, where you could look it up on your phone. So, so, so all of a sudden, you see a billboard that says Cracker Barrel. You know what I'm saying, all right? Everybody know Cracker Barrel? Oh, son, you got it. If you're missing out, 20 minutes north, 93, one pretty close, all right? But anyway, Cracker Barrel, exit 112. And man, you're feeling good until you see that you just passed mile marker 32, Right? And so what happens? You, you keep looking for the billboards, and they just become tantalizing, right? You're like at, at, at mile marker 53, there's another one. Mile marker 72, there's another one. And all of a sudden, you just don't even want to look up anymore because you're just so hungry and wanting that food to be in front of you so you can devour it, right? These, these signs point to what is to come. They point to what is ahead. And the law was designed to point to Christ, to the one who would both receive and fulfill the promised blessing to Abraham. So the law shows us how deep our need is for grace. It points it out. It helps us see our need for Christ. But now what Paul's going to show us is that in Christ, the pointing is no longer needed because faith has come in him. So read verses 23 through 29 with me. Paul picks up and he says this. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So here's what's going on in Galatians chapter 3. Paul holds up Abraham, the man of faith, to not only highlight that justification is always by faith, but also that all of the blessings that are promised are also obtained through faith. He's not only a model of justification, but he's a model of those who will receive these blessings and promises of God. So he's going to wrap up his argument and say, everyone who shares the faith of Abraham is a son of Abraham, son of God, and heir of everything God wants to distribute to his people. That is good news. So we begin to ask ourselves, then what is the promise? What is our inheritance? 
And simply put, it is salvation in its most stunning and incomprehensible sense. Okay, so what I want to do is just walk through these verses and show you the, the fruit and the benefits of salvation and how it now reorients our relationship to God. And then I want to chase the implications of that as we finish up. Okay, so, so what, is, what is ours because of these promises of God? All right, number one, we are sons and daughters in Christ. All right, look back at verse 26. He says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So it's, it's through faith. It's through trusting in the work of Christ, receiving this blessing of salvation that now we belong to the family of God. And John is going to unpack this for us next week in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 4. But let me just touch on it and say that this, this relationship, okay, is not just reduced to some kind of acquaintance that we can have with God. You know, we can kind of check in and check out with him. It's not that he's given us a little dab of his glory or his blessing, okay? He has given us everything in Christ. He has completely welcomed, welcomed us in so now we are completely in Christ, and Christ is completely in us. I know you can't wrap your mind around that. I'm just telling you that's the reality if you have put your faith in Christ Jesus. You are sons and daughters of the King, completely united in Him. And Paul then naturally goes to a picture that explains that. Not only are you sons and daughters in Christ, but you have also been baptized into Christ. Verse 27. For as many as, of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So at Redemption Hill, we like to say that baptism, all right, along with the Lord's Supper, which we're going to celebrate today, that baptism is a drama of the gospel, all right? It's a story. It's a going public of what God has done on the inside of the person when he has made them new and caused them to be born again in Christ. So, 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 so check this out. What baptism is is someone saying, hey, I once was dead in my sin, but now I have died to myself. In the words of Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. So that's why we immerse people here at Redemption. We take them under the water completely, and then we raise them up out of the water to show that they were once dead, but now they have been completely made alive together with Christ Galatians 2.20, I hope you memorize it already. If you haven't, like put that on your homework assignment this week. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. We're alive because Christ is alive in us. And this is what I love about the picture of baptism, okay? This is why we practice baptism by immersion for everyone who has believed in Christ. It's because of this. We have not received just a little bit of Christ. Sprinkling, pouring, okay, I'm not, if that's been your experience, okay, my purpose is not to demean you or question the sincerity or intention of your baptism, okay, but to, to highlight that 
the most biblical form of baptism that we see that pictures the gospel forth most clearly is that we have been completely incorporated into Christ. We have put on Christ. We have been clothed with Christ from head to toe. We have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. God didn't just give us a little bit of his spirit. As John told us a couple weeks ago, he has given us all of his spirit. Should I sit down? Man, that's good. So, so, so here's the invitation. Listen, are you in Christ? Have you been baptized into Christ? And perhaps some of you are saying, man, when I see my life against the law, I know that I haven't measured up. And I know that through trying to keep the law, that's never going to deliver life to me. So, so I need to trust in Christ. I need to follow Christ in baptism. Some of you may be a new believer and you've never followed Christ and believers' baptism by immersion. You say, you know what? I want to experience that picture of what baptism truly is and what it signifies and represents. And still others of you, maybe you've been baptized even after you were saved and yet it wasn't by immersion. It wasn't the full picture. And so we don't baptize people just to baptize people. But if that's you and you're saying, man, I see that this is the true picture of, of baptism and what the gospel represents. Man, if you're in either one of those three camps, then we want you to come and talk to us. Let us know. Fill out the connect card. We want to walk you through what it means to be baptized and follow Christ as a step of obedience and faith in light of what he has done for us. So we are in Christ. We have been baptized into Christ. We are one with him. And then, not surprisingly, we are also one with one another. This is what he goes on to say in verse 28. Look at that. It says, there is neither now in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. Okay, so just look around the room for a moment. For everyone you set your eyes on that has trusted in the work of Christ and experienced salvation, you are now, in some mysterious way, you are one with that person. So you're not only one with Christ, everyone who is in Christ, sons and daughters who belong to him, are now one with one another. This is what we love about the gospel, that it not only radically reorients our relationship with God, but it also radically reorients our relationship to one another. So now what Paul is going to teach us is that ethnicity no longer divides us. You know what I'm saying? My girl Yoldi over here, who was born in Haiti, is my sister, and we are now one, even though we don't share the same ethnicity. The gospel breaks it down. It breaks down ethnic barriers. We're now family in Christ. The gospel also breaks down socioeconomic barriers, slave nor free. Okay, so, so it's not about rich, poor, middle class. Okay, we're all family in Christ. Even, even the way that God made us as male and female, there is no barriers there. We are now family in Christ. And so what we want to be at Redemption Hill is a church that, that pictures this, okay? We want to be a thumbprint of our community. So we are not a white church, brown church, or black church. We are not a poor church, rich church, or middle class church. We are not a church for women or a church for men. We are Christ's church, and we are his. 
So when you're kind of cruising around Medford or you're working at your workplace, okay, just know that every single person you set your eyes on is welcomed into our fellowship because Jesus has welcomed us all in. So this doesn't mean that there is no longer distinction between ethnicities, all right? That, that, that there is not uniqueness when it comes to our maleness or our, our femaleness, or that we all have the same kind of jobs and responsibilities, okay? But what it means is we're all one. We're all family. We're all united in Christ. Verse 29, we belong to Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring. So this is Paul's whole point here. If you are Christ, then you are in with Abraham, and there is nothing hindering you from having everything in him. You don't need to keep a law. You don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to do anything else but trust in Christ. And when you do, you belong to him. Our lives wholly belong to God. And then don't miss this last phrase. It says that if you are Abraham's offsprings, then you, offspring, you are heirs according to the promise. So this should have a ring of triumph, okay? You can't read verse 29 if you're really paying attention to it and not kind of feel lifted and elevated because of what is ours in Christ. Don't miss this. We are heirs with Christ. Whatever belongs to Christ is ours. Complete fellowship with God is ours. Victory over death is ours. The world is ours. I mean, just really like take that and just think on it, okay? This is mind-blowing truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God. If you are in Christ, you own the world. You have no lack because of what he has done. So what I want to do is, again, these are, these are the blessings of the promise of our salvation. But these blessings and these promises just continue to run throughout Scripture. So I want to chase this for a few more moments as we conclude our time in God's Word. I hope that you know the, the precious and very great promises that are ours in Christ. If you read the scripture, what you're going to find are, are just promises that, that fall down like a hailstorm of grace, page after page, just bombarding us with the truth of who God is, how much he loves us, how much he's for us, what we have in him. Every truth that we see in Scripture, we can really claim as a promise from Him. So let me just drill down for a moment. And I'm guessing, just because of how good the Holy Spirit is, that you're going to hear some of these and you're going to say, ooh, that's me. Man, I need to believe that. Give me faith to trust what you say kind of thing, all right? So keep singing that song as you hear these words, all right? Number one, if you are weary, weak, and lonely... Perhaps you're really just going through it. I mean, you're tired. You don't feel strong. You feel a little isolated. 
What about Isaiah 41.10? Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Maybe some of you are anxious this morning. I know we have a lot of anxiety that, that just creeps into our life for a variety of reasons. Maybe it's relational, you know, connected to relationship. Maybe it's vocational or, you know, we're just, we're uncertain of, of what's to come. Well, we have this command in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties on him. But why can we do that? Well, because there's this promise that God cares for you. So cast your anxieties on him because of the promise that God cares for you. What about if you're making decisions? You, you need some direction in your life. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. You could throw Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Most of you have memorized that if you've been in the church very long. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will what? He will make straight your paths. So if you need direction, if you need guidance, if, if you're trying to make some decisions, ask God, and he will give generously to you. If you ask in faith and trust in him, he's going to make your paths straight. What about if you have an uncertain future related to that? Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Psalm 34, verse 10. What if you're just wanting to grow in your faith? You're just trying to grow in grace. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitude, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For what? For they will be filled. He will deliver everything good that we need. Are you suffering? Well, Romans 8, 18 says our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. There is coming glory and all of our sufferings will, will pale in comparison to what is to come. What about if you're persecuted? If you're being persecuted in any way, Jesus would again say to you, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are all promises that we can claim as those who are in Christ. This is why you want to get in Christ because now you have resources to face any of life's challenges and trials that you may face. And how about just a couple more that kind of sum it up comprehensively. If you doubt the goodness of God, then, then, then read Romans 8 and cling to these truths and promises. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, uh, what, what, should, what, what can we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? And then verse 32 is so good. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see how that works? What we do is because we've seen how faithful God is, we look back at his past grace and his past faithfulness, and that builds our faith in his future grace. You doubt the goodness of God, look to the cross. You doubt God is going to take care of you, look to the cross. You doubt if God can pull you out of the, the mire of your anguish and anxiety and trouble and despair, look to the cross. 
For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from his love if you are in Christ. All of the promises of God are yes in him. So let me ask you, are you clinging to his promises today? Are you like waking up in the morning and saying, God, you are real, you are true. You have abundant promises for me to know and to claim And so I'm going to cling to those promises and stake my life on everything that you have said. This is where life is found. It's found in the the faithfulness of God, the character of God, his ability to come through on his promises. So let me wrap up and just give us one final exhortation. These are the promises of God. Let me just give you one way to respond to all of his promises. And it comes from Paul in 2 Corinthians 7.1, where he says this, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So when we see all of who God is and we see all that he has promised to us and how good and faithful and true and glorious he is, then our only rightful response is to see who he is and to respond by giving him our lives in every single detail, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God.